Hello, John and Jen Perrin. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Hey, Shane. Thanks for having us. Hey, good morning. I'm excited to be here. Good. Uh, we have a very interesting conversation lined up. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about PTSD and trauma and how that affects both uh, individuals and couples and families and, you know, what it all means and why it's important for people to hear about and to think about and, you know, to help also people who are maybe going through something similar. And that's part of, you know, what both of you have been doing with your Twisted Trauma podcast and the foundation that you've recently started. Um, so perhaps let's start with just a little bit of context history. Um, John or, or Jen, whoever would like to go first. I mean, you know, how did you get into the space? You know, what led you to become sort of like advocates so to speak yeah so um one special thing about this is actually this is the first time that jen and i have actually done a podcast or interview together which is pretty cool um i'm honored yeah so so what's uh what brought us to this is that um i'm a police officer and i am living with post-traumatic stress disorder from some work-related calls that I went to. And Jen is also a first responder. She's a nurse. And yeah, she's been, you know, living through this with me and has very good insight into it when it comes to a spouse of someone that has PTSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, just to sort of start off, like, how would you loosely describe what PTSD is for someone who's maybe kind of heard of it but doesn't really know much about the you know, psychological aspect or the realities of, of living with it? Yeah, so I know if you're like, if people are like me, um, you know, me growing up, I was born in 1981 and we never really talked about mental health, right? And if we were going through stuff, we mainly we're told just, you know, suck it up and, and walk it off, especially in, in sports and stuff, right? It was suck it up, walk it off, you'll be okay. And that was kind of the same mentality for mental health. Um, so, yeah. like, I had trauma as a young child that I had buried away. And I've come to learn that about 70 or so percent of first responders, they get into being a first responder because they've went through some childhood trauma. And we get into this field because we want to help people, um, people that were like us growing up that, that had this trauma. Um, yeah. Did, did you want to touch on anything? Um, no, just myself. So as John mentioned, I am a nurse, um, but my background is um, cardiac. So I have no um, mental health, health background at all. So I was aware of the terms of PTSD, depression, um, but I've never experienced it with a patient or a family member. Um, so I've done a lot of research and living through it is a lot different than just kind of knowing about what PTSD is. So I've yeah. learned a lot in the past few years. And to be honest, I didn't pick up on it for the first couple of years that John was suffering with PTSD. 
And that's a tough, that's been probably one of the toughest things for me as well, not even picking up on it, being a nurse, being a spouse. Um, so I've educated myself now and I want to educate others, other spouses, because the OPP did not provide that for us. And if I felt like, um, you know, we had a little bit of learnings or sessions on how, how to, the warning signs, but maybe I could have helped him a lot sooner than I did. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, sorry, I think that's because too, Shane, that the police, this is, this is, I mean, it's something that the police didn't talk about for years, right? It's just all coming to the forefront now. So it's no fault of their own. They no. just, it's, this is all new. Like people are starting to actually speak out about it. Right. And and what got us into this is um, I'll t- I'll tell you my story. Like so, PTSD. Anybody can suffer from PTSD. It doesn't have to be a first responder, but we're just kind of more um, susceptible. Yeah, it. like we we attend these calls that your brain isn't normally used to processing. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. We go and your brain's not used to seeing some of the things that we see, and and so if you did you. Did you want to hear the story of what happened to yeah, me specifically? Yeah, so near the end of... Um, so I got on to, to policing in 2012, and I started on the road in 2013. And I worked for... From 2013 to 2016, I worked as the frontline officer responding to, to frontline calls. Um, and then I got into... Uh, traffic initiative where myself and one other officer were just put out on the road to write traffic tickets and do uh, traffic enforcement, um, drug stops, I call them, and stuff like that. And then I started coaching as a coach officer, training a new recruit in 2017. So I went back to the road to train him. And then it was near the end of 2017 where I just kind of wasn't feeling myself um, I mean, I had responded to all kinds of different calls, right? Like domestic abuse, sexual assaults, uh, fatal car accidents, you name it. And, and I had been to it. But at the end of 2017, the first was Friday the 13th. I can remember it was Friday, October 13th. And I came in on a night shift and I was asked to go up and speak to the father of a young girl who was missing and she had been missing for a couple of days and he just reported it. the father just reported it that day, but then he went to work so they couldn't get in touch with him. So they asked me to go up and fill out the paperwork, missing person questionnaire and stuff with him. And I said, yeah, no problem. So I went up to the, he lived on a farm and there's a couple barns and on the property and stuff. So long story short, I searched the property and it's like one in the morning at this point and I I go into a barn and there she is. She had uh, killed herself by suicide by hanging and she was just a young female and she shared the same name as my daughter. So, you know, I I dealt with that situation, um, talked with the parents, I mean, everybody... What do you say in a situa- situation like that to a father, right, Who, yeah. whose daughter just passed away? Um, 
so yeah, so I, I finished the shift. I went home and I went back in on the next night shift. And then I started having night like nightmares about the hanging where it was almost like I was reliving walking into that barn and, and seeing this girl there. And then two months after that, it was December and we got a call. I got a call for uh, a young male who had been in an argument with his girlfriend and he left the house on foot. And so I went up to this call and it was snowing and it was fresh snow and we got all the information from the girlfriend and we went out to try and find this guy. And as I was walking out of the house, I could see some footprints in the snow going around. It was like a little wooded area in between the house and where they had their garage. Um, so I start following these, these footprints and I come around the forest to like an open area kind of thing. And there he was, he had also killed himself hmm. and had committed suicide. And, and so we had to cut him down and, and try and save his life, but it didn't, it did, we weren't able to, and unfortunately he passed away. And yeah, I just, from that, that point forward, I just started having nightmares, um, flashbacks. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to burden Jen with any of my problems and I thought it would just go away. And then I started to have panic attacks. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, just sweating and, you know, I couldn't, I was having trouble sleeping and stomach problems, stomach headaches. problems headaches. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, I worked from the end of 2017 to June, 2019. And in June, 2019, I was on a night shift and it was like two or 3 AM AM in the morning. And I was just sitting with my cruiser parked in a restaurant parking lot with no one around. And I started having thoughts of suicide running through my mind. And I had a breakdown. And so from some, I, I explain it like this, some miracle, I end up pulling a picture of my two kids out of my wallet. And I looked at it and that kind of saved my life. I thought I need to be able to stay alive for my kids first of all and so i went home after that shift and i broke down to jen and she got me in to see the, my family doctor the that day yeah. wow i mean yeah that's a, a hell of a story and you know i think that <clears throat> excuse me one of the things that you know a lot of us sort of non-first responder folk don't appreciate until you sort of hear it or think about it is how, you know, unimaginable some of these calls that you have to attend to are, right? And that you kind of know that going in, but it's one thing to, as you say, you know, hear about it in a story or, or think about it or learn about it. And it's another thing to actually experience it and have to, you know, be there and deal with it and deal with the people around and, you know, what that, does as you say it's it's just beyond what your your brain is ready to comprehend and to make sense of right that's right yeah um, and the and, and the longer you since now that i've learned the longer you 
try and run away from those thoughts and those feelings, the farther down that rabbit hole you'll go. And I lived it. I I mean, I, uh, for that two years, well, even after June, 2019, I still struggled for, I'm still struggling. Um, I'm a lot better than what I was, but, um, from 2017 to 2019, like I was coming home from work. I was isolating myself away from Jen. I was living a second life. I would leave my house and go out and, you know, live a second life because I had to get away from my reality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it, it certainly got worse before <clears throat> it got better. Even after you were diagnosed, I think the year after was, was really, really bad, but yeah. Because that's when you have to start dealing with the reality of it, right? Yes. The first step is acknowledging it or accepting it. And then the second or the next step is to then now start having these feelings and, you know, being able to process them. And Mm -hmm. that's rough because it's been, it's what you've been running away from for the past two years or or whatever it would be, right? And and what you'll see happen with, with, uh, people that suffer with PTSD is they push they push their loved ones away because um, trying you know, to protect they don't, them. Yeah, they don't. We, we're trying to protect them. We're trying not to like burden them with our with our own feelings and thoughts and stuff, right? And I know for Jen, I I probably gave her so many different reasons that she could have left at any time because that's how bad I was. Yeah. I, my family doctor had a very good way of explaining it, though, with at, at the time with PTSD and how the reason why a lot of people that suffer end up having this, this second life. He said, what happens is PTSD takes over your entire world, including your home. And he said, doing these things that they normally wouldn't do is kind of like going to the movies. If you and I go to the movies, you have fun and you laugh, you kind of forget everything else that's going on in your life for those two or three hours. Like you shut it out. So he said that's kind of what happens when with the PTSD and the second life that can happen. Yeah. And, you know, completely understandable that one would want to escape and that one would want to protect their loved ones, right? I mean, it doesn't work out so well, it turns out, but the rationale behind it is is completely understandable. And I think it's something that at least I can, you know, empathize with to some degree, not with PTSD per se, but just the idea of like wanting to protect, you know, your loved ones from, you know, your burdens, so to speak. But it, that turns out not to be the best way of approaching it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, it tends to come back and, you know, you shut it down and eventually it's going to pop back up again and rear its ugly head in front of everyone. And um, it's not a great place to be. But you know, it's not the end and people make it through. And, you know, as you guys are a testament to is that you can come through the other side, right? With your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can start living again. And, you know, healing takes time for sure, but it's not uh, be all and do all. And um, I mean, it, it's really, I imagine it's something that, you know, really you need to go through to really understand it, you know, yeah. at like a deeper level. But at the same time, I would say it's important to speak about it and to help people who haven't been through it or who aren't going to go through it or something like it to understand that this is what people are going through, some people, right? And why they're doing the things that they're doing and why they're having these 
second lives or these, um, you know, series of like physical symptoms that seem to come out of nowhere or Mm -hmm. don't have an obvious answer to them. Um, and that there actually is, and it's, it's not a pretty reality, but it's good to at least know and acknowledge and understand it, right? Because that's how you can start dealing with it. I know uh, alcohol also played a big factor with me. I turned to to alcohol to try and numb my feelings and thoughts and stuff. And Mm -hmm. that's another thing that a lot of first responders will do is is turn to alcohol or whatever Mm -hmm. kind of addiction it is to try and numb themselves. Yeah, and that that combination of alcohol and and PTSD is just uh, a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as as you've said, it's like you can push it away or you can shove the feelings down, but they don't go away. I mean, they just resurface somewhere else or in something else or disguised as this or that. And, you know, it can be really mean and alcohol is a weird one because it's so socially accepted as like yeah, a, right. as as a non a non problematic substance generally mm-hmm. speaking i mean i guess you know people recognize that there are you know people who have alcoholism or various addiction issues but you know it's still like everywhere you go basically for dinner there's people drinking or mm-hmm. it's so yeah. normal for people to come home after work and drink or you know, and then it just, I mean, for those who have the propensity towards addiction or who have, you know, the, I mean, you know, aside from the biological makeup of it, it's like, it's a mean, it's a mean thing. And when you combine that with the psychological thing like PTSD, it's a double whammy. Yeah, um, for sure. And I know, uh, like for me, so as a child, um, I'll, I'll tell you the story of about my childhood here. So, sure. um, my father, he was married before he met my mom, and his first wife had a, a rare type of cancer. So she was uh, terminally ill, and they had only gave her, I can't remember the amount of time it was, but they had only gave her, um, like, to her early 20s that she would be alive. Hmm. And so my dad married her knowing that she was going to eventually pass away. And so she passed away, and... I believe that's probably the time that my dad turned to alcohol. And so then he met my mom and they had my brother in 1977. I was born in 81 and my dad was a full fledged alcoholic. And it's, you know, it's all I ever seen as a, as a child. And so seeing that and growing up in, in that environment, is you know an, another thing that uh, when I was growing up and I went through my childhood traumas, yeah. I started playing. I started playing junior hockey at 15 years old, which was really young at the time. There's n- nobody else that young in the league, and I was initiated and hazed my rookie year. Um, There's about eight rookies that were on the team that year, and just a few things they did like we I don't know if you ever heard of the sweat box before but the rookies all had to strip down naked and pile into our team bus washroom which is just a normal school bus washroom tiny like I can barely fit in it just myself so there's eight naked 
rookie hockey players in this washroom together, and the idea was they tied our clothes all together, and we had to have the clothes thrown into us and untangle them ourselves while we're all naked there. And you couldn't come out of this washroom until you're dressed. And, I mean, I had been through being sexually abused at the age of 10. I was in, it was after grade 5, so I think it was around 10. And just being in that washroom with all these guys brought back that memory. And so I I couldn't say anything at that time because I had to, you know, I didn't want to lose my spot on the team. Um, I was trying to play at the highest level of hockey as I could at the time. Um, And booze and that was easily accessible to me so i turned to alcohol yeah and that's what that's what i used from the age of 15 to you know until i quit playing when i was 21 yeah no it's crazy and i mean those that initiation hazing shit is i mean it's insane i mean I, i don't get it uh you know it's supposed to be some sort of like ritualistic bonding experience i it's hard to know how much of it is actually true, probably almost none. Um, and there's a lot of like, you know, well, I did it, so you have to do it kind of mentality of like, we went through it, so you we got to put you through it kind of stuff. And it's just yeah. perpetuating this nonsense of team bonding through pain yeah. or, or suffering and, or whatever it is, right? And anybody I've ever talked to about it, like, I've said I don't I don't blame the the older players because at that time in the late 90s early 2000s it was it was a normal practice for teams to do stuff like that right it's all they everyone else had had been through it too right they were just doing what was done to them that that's exactly right yeah and I mean it to me it's the the team and and the coaches and stuff that are the adults that the should adults, be yeah. that should be taking control of that and saying, you know what, this isn't this isn't right, and yeah. I think we're starting to see that change now too with people speaking out like like myself and Jen and absolutely. I mean, it is it's it's a crazy world, and you know, particularly for kids. I mean, what you know, what what do they expect you to do at fifteen? Like. You know, yeah. your your prefrontal cortex is hardly developed enough to even know who you yeah. are in the world, let alone be able to manage such crazy situations. Like, what yeah. do they think is going to happen? And, you know, I, I guess, like you say, it's like, well, the people, the, at least the older kids, I mean, they didn't really know what they were doing and they were just repeating what had been done to them. And, you know, I mean, maybe even the coaches to some degree are just level up of that right and they're just yeah. they turn a blind eye because they're like this is just what happens in these leagues and i mean it's terrible it's not excusable by any means but it's at least we, we can understand it at that level right and yeah yeah i mean you know you you said you've got the the addiction i mean the genetics for the addiction and so yeah. when when you found that alcohol somewhat works as a self-medicant you used it and understandably so and you know, but it has its consequences and, and it's rough yeah. Um, and it doesn't come without uh, another side to it. Yeah. And the, and the, and the toughest thing is too, is, is I know for me, I was in denial about it. I was, you know, Jen would, would say something to me and I'd be like, Oh no, it's, you know, I'm just having a, a couple drinks or whatever. Um, it took me, 
I don't know how long to actually come out of denial that I needed some help and that I was addicted to alcohol. Yeah. And the thing with yours, you too, when you did drink, it was always, you never missed work. Like it was very, the way he had it, it was, it was kind of structured. So he would drink on his, after his last shift, probably down in the basement all night, still get up in the morning, take the kids to school. And like I said, he would never drink the night before going to work. He'd never miss work because of drinking. Um, so it was quite hidden very well. So, yeah. So sorry, John, just letting the dog. Um, so that was also hard to argue with him too, because he wasn't missing, missing things because of it. it wasn't the typical sometimes alcoholic. Right. It's that half functioning addict where yeah. it, 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 everything appears fine. If you look at That's it right. from the surface, right. You're yeah, still going to work. You're still doing your stuff, but it's not exactly. actually all, all okay. And you um, know, and who am I to say, I didn't, I don't see the things that he sees. So to be sitting down and having some drinks after the last night shift i you know yeah you empathize with it right yeah for sure yeah and it must be tremendously difficult for you because you know at on the one hand it's like you can see him not doing well but on Mm -hmm. the other hand you're like but actually he seems to be doing okay he's still going to work he's still taking care of the kids and whatever so is it that big of a problem and you know Mm -hmm. he's saying that it's not and that's because, yeah. you know, John, you believed it. It wasn't just that you were lying or trying to cover up some stuff. It's like that self-denial is it can be such a barrier to understanding what's happening, right? And we do that to ourselves yeah. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we pretend like our problems don't exist or we make up reasons to think that they're otherwise than they are because we don't want to face that reality, right? Because that reality hurts too much. Um Go ahead, and then yeah. you end up to, yeah, with people also, um, because we were a lot into hockey for our son at that time. So a lot of the weekends away, everyone's drinking. So it's mm-hmm. not abnormal for everyone, for everybody there. Um, actually, John's now abnormal, I would say, when people come over because he doesn't drink anymore and people still, oh, are you sure you don't want one? He still kind of yeah. gets that pressure even when he does go out golfing, um, so that's that's another struggle in itself sometimes. Yeah, so I'll tell you the biggest struggles with living with PTSD and sure. from being, you know, using alcohol as, as something to cope with. Um, when I was first, I don't like saying diagnosed, but when I first was told that I have PTSD, mm-hmm. I was scared and nervous and I felt, you know, I felt weak and I didn't want to go out in public and have people see me. Mm-hmm. I struggle going out in public now as it is, but I was so scared to go out and have people see me and be like, oh, he can be out doing, you know, out golfing and he can't work. <coughs> right. But I've soon come to learn because I, I would stay home and I wouldn't go out and I'm not getting any better doing that. Yeah. So the struggle was to get myself out there and not worry about what other people think. And I think a lot of us that are, are living with PTSD, we're in that same mind frame where we stay inside because we can't, we don't want people to see us or, or talk about us and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
particularly but you're not gonna people get... that you care about, right? Like colleagues yeah. or friends or whatever. That's it is. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that kind of like that stigma, right? Like it's, um, you know, you, you go into a public game playing golf and someone sees you and then they go back to work and say, Oh, John was out golfing, but he can't right. work. But you know, for me, I've learned you, you have to get out there and do things or you're just, you're not going to recover. Yeah. Um, you got to take start, care of yourself. Yeah. You got to start to train your, your brain to be able to process the things that you've been through and try and normalize it as much as you can and just file it away back into your brain in a way that it's still there. You can still think about it, but when you think about it, it's not traumatizing you again. Right. You don't relive that trauma every time you think about it. Right. right. Yeah. And and that's, that's, that's difficult for people to do because a lot of us stay inside and don't do anything but sit and think about the traumas. Right. So and what could was, be that, what could be more normal, right? Because that's how our brains operate: is we try and yeah. think about things over and over and over until we can make sense of it. But the nature of a trauma is that there's some piece that you can't integrate, and usually you, it's a matter of you know getting some help from a, some sort of professional to help you do that, and yeah. man, many other options, obviously. But um, otherwise, you know, you're left to your own devices to try and figure it mm -hmm. out. And when you can't, because it's so unusually stimulating in whatever way, um, you're stuck, right? And you're mm -hmm. stuck just repeating that over and over again. And it leads to some, you know, really unpleasant, mean consequences that ultimately can land you, you know, suicidal or something like that, yep. right? Or homicidal, I suppose, if, if you're yeah. doing it a different way. But um, the stigma... You know, just to touch on that point, I mean, I think that especially today, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, destigmatizing mental health and all kinds of things that, that have a lot of stigma associated with it. And I think that it's a really good effort, right? It's super important. And it's something that people who have been through something like that and have had this sort of stigma imposed on them or you know, at least they think it is, right? Because um, a lot of it's your perception of how other people are perceiving you. It's not necessarily how they are perceiving you. But as you say, it's like you think that your friends or your colleagues are going to go back to work and say, oh, well, why was John playing golf instead of being at work? And they might be saying that, but they also might not, right? They might be saying like, oh, it's so nice to see John finally right, out yeah. and playing golf, right? I'm happy that he's able to do these things or I'm happy that he's finding something to bring more joy to his life or whatever it is. And I mean, listen, you always get dickheads that are going to be, you know, mean about it and think those things. And that's just because they're unhappy, right? And and they're jealous yeah. of, you know, well, they yeah. think they're jealous, but I mean, they're just trying to, you know, figure out their own shit. And that's, that's unfortunate, right. but, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, all the best to them. I mean, everyone deserves to, to be happy and figure it out. Um, but you're absolutely right that, you know, it's so important. That's why these conversations are so helpful is because I think it gives a glimpse into the side of the stigma that's not just like, oh, don't be mean to people who are suffering, right? It's like, I think that's all, you know, it's hard to like actually put together what the sort of stigma problem 
is because it varies from case to case and person to person. Okay, yeah. um, and it's all equally relevant in the sense of like when it's you, what's important is how it, it's affecting you, right? Not, you know, like for you, it's like, well, the stigma against, I don't know, this or that, you're like, okay, but I mean, that's not what's affecting my life right now, right? And for you, it's like these thoughts of like, this like social anxiety almost of, you know, what are people going to think and, you know, what should I do and how do I come off in the best way possible? And, you know, I want to show people that I'm doing and feeling better, even if I'm not. And that's not necessarily yeah. a good thing. I mean, sometimes I suppose it's debatable, but um, it is a problem, you know, and, and these are the kind of conversations and, you know, the podcast that you have and the foundation, the Twisted Trauma Foundation that you've started um, these are the steps that are super important to take, you know, both for people who are going through it and for spouses and for kids and, you know, everyone yeah. that basically gets affected by it. And yeah, so there's a lot did of you wanna, Did you want to hear about the Twisted Trauma Foundation? We can sure, yeah. Let's, tell let's you how hear, that started. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, um, let's hear about all those good things that you're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in 2020, I can't remember what month it was. It was around the winter, I think. Sure. But one of our officers at the office that I work at, he, he was involved in a serious incident and was hurt really bad. And that's the time where I was sitting at home and I was going, I felt really bad. I'm like, I'm not there to support him or support my coworkers. And I need to start doing something to feel like I have a purpose in life. Because right now I don't feel like I have any kind of a purpose. Um, so yeah, I started, I'm like, I'm going to start this podcast and I just called it twisted drama. There's no rhyme or reason for it. And it's at the same time, it. yeah. And at the <laughs> same time I, I started fundraising and the idea was to raise $2,500 in increments and donate it to different mental health organizations in our community. Amazing. Yeah. So I started doing that and Flato Developments, they're, uh, they're working, we're from the city of Kortha Lakes, so they're, they're working in our area now, uh, construction, building some uh, subdivisions and stuff, and they heard what we were doing, so they donated the actual full $2,500 to begin with, and we gave that to the Canadian Mental Health Association. And then I raised another $2,500 that we donated to the Ross Memorial Hospital. They're, it's through Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah just, just all through Facebook, Facebook to start. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we donated that to the Ross Memorial Hospital mental health program. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, this is like actually catching on, Jen. Like people are, are mm -hmm. supporting this and behind us. And I'm like, Jen's like, well, why don't we just, you know, see if we can register it as a nonprofit and we'll provide some peer support mm -hmm. to people that are living with mental health illnesses or injuries in my case. And I, we thought that was a, a great idea. So mm -hmm. we, Jen had it registered and yeah, since then we've done donations to wounded warriors, um, the city of Kortha Lakes boys and girls club. They have a mental health program that specializes in with children Hmm. Uh, so we so we gave them two thousand um, dollars. We actually supported a couple pubs in our area, 
because the one pub, right, they two girls had taken it over right before COVID had struck. And Shame. Yeah, yeah. And what a so, time to take over a pub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, you know what, let's let's just give them a little bit of money. So we donate some money to them to help them out and keep them going. And most recently we started it up uh it's called the Twisted Trauma Feed It Forward program. And I started this because I thought, you know, there's that close relationship with mental health and homelessness and people not being able to sometimes get the meals that they they need to have. Absolutely. So I teamed up yeah, so I teamed up with two local pizza pizza restaurants here and we don't and not franchises, we try to yeah, do family the, owned the family owned yeah. ones. Um so we donated the first one hundred meals, which was a pizza slice and a pop to both restaurants. And then if customers want to contribute, they can donate five dollars to their order and then that puts another voucher up on the board. Hmm. And if someone needs a meal, they go in and grab the voucher and use it to get their meal. And then uh, this coming Monday, we're doing it with a local coffee shop. Um, I donated the first 100 coffees, tea, or hot chocolate. And anyone that needs those drinks, especially through the winter months, can just go in, grab the voucher, and use it to get a coffee or a tea. Those are, yeah. I mean, congratulations to both of you. Those are amazing, you know, initiatives and, and things that you've done. And, I'm sure they helped, right? Every small thing helps someone at some point. I mean, you know, giving someone a meal or a coffee, it, it could mean the world to them, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I know for, for me too, myself, like someone that's going through PTSD, giving back to people and helping people is actually very therapeutic. Like it, it helps me more than everybody probably knows. Um, yeah. I started doing it to help myself and help some others. And it's really, really been pretty successful so far. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's a funny thing how that works, right? Is that how helping others is helpful to your own recovery journey. I mean, you can see that in, in lots of different places like peer support groups where for those who yeah. don't know, you know, people who have, um, similar afflictions or conditions or injuries or something like that get together and share their experiences and, and help each other along their own journeys. And, you know, yeah. in the, in those places, you'll find people at various stages and, you know, people who yeah. are fresh in it or people who are, mm-hmm. you know, somewhat along or very along. And, you know, there's, there's wisdom to be learned from, from each of them, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you also find it in like the mutual aid societies, like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Sorry. It's a similar sort of idea of like, you know, the 12th step of a 12 step program is to give back and help others. Right. And it's not, not accidental that it's designed that way because it really is tremendously beneficial to you. And I think it's, it's an interesting like distinction between when you're doing it for the sake of doing it versus doing it for like your job. Right. That's right. Um, Yeah. Because both, as both of you very well know, like your jobs are about helping and protecting people, right? But that's not quite the same as when you're just doing it because you want to give back and there's nothing financially or otherwise invested in it for you. You're just doing it to help other people and to help yourself. But, you know, that's not 
uh, necessarily the main conscious yeah. driver or maybe it and is just, and that's okay yeah. too right just talking about that too um yeah i just wanted to talk about this too because i know this is something that i struggled with in my recovery and so i started off seeing a psychologist and i did i got to a point he helped me he helped me a lot yeah yeah he helped me a lot and we got to the point though where i felt like it was kind of like groundhog day we were just you know i'd go in we'd talk about the same thing and i was just felt like i was kind of stuck right and so i started looking for something more something that i could find to to get me over that feeling of being stuck sorry our dogs are coming in here now <laughs> and, and uh yeah, so I, I actually, and this is how you and I have actually came to get together, is I found Bill Tebow. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he, you know, he specializes in working with people that suffer with PTSD, and he's worked with all kinds of people with, um, you know, survivors of the residential schools. And Holocaust. The Holocaust. 9-11. Yeah. And so I always tell people, like, don't everyone's recovery is different and don't feel bad if you need to switch psychologists or switch healthcare providers because you're the one that is in control of your recovery right and you you know what you need i mean you can't sit down with someone and have them tell you what you need if that's not what you want kind of thing right so I think a lot of a lot of us are are scared to speak up and say, you know what? I think I need something different right. in in my, in my recovery, and so I just want to yeah, make yeah. sure everyone knows. Yeah, like just you know, if you're if you're feeling like I was stuck in a certain situation, look, be your own advocate for your recovery, and and look and and see if there's anything you can find to help you. Absolutely, because that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I think it's a very important point because there's no perfect formula for these things, right? At least not yet, and I don't know if ever. And, you know, as you say, you're the one who knows yourself best and, and what you need. And right. although <clears throat> although you might not know completely or exactly, sometimes you can tell when something else is needed or when you're stuck with the therapist and you're like, I, this just isn't going anywhere we've tried it let me i need to do something else and right. you're right it, it's hard to do that because sometimes you might feel like you're failing or that it's your fault that you weren't able to make it work with the therapist or that you know you yeah. can't do it and that's not none of that's really true I, right? I didn't want to hurt his feelings like yeah. I, I was i was worried about hurting his feelings yeah. saying cuz he I did think, help you yeah. thing and the mental health it is very hard to navigate through the mental health care system too you have to really um speak up for yourself and it's been finding bill's been a godsend um like he's i and i know you know him and you know this but he is brilliant and it is quite hard to find people who actually have 
proper PTSD training with first responders. Cause I even remember John saying that to a psychologist, Oh, have you had other officers? And you kind of didn't, I know they can't tell you confidentially, but you never really got a straight answer. And, um, I think it got to the point where he hadn't had a lot of experience, which is fine. Um, but finding that person who has the actual specialty in it and can tell you stories, it's actually the first time John said he's felt normal yeah. after talking to Bill, Bill makes him feel normal. Um, yeah, Bill's amazing. I mean, he was one of, yeah. uh, you know, I've, we've, I've known him for a few years and he was actually one yeah. of the, the first guests that I had on, on the podcast. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, he told us some of the stories of him working with, you know, the 9-11 stuff and the earthquakes yeah. and all kinds of insane stuff that he does. I mean, yeah. I've never met anyone quite like him and he's got this Me like tre tremendous positive attitude despite yeah. his whole life basically being dealing with tragedy, right? That's right. And like yeah. the, the worst of it every time. I mean, you know, no. pre-COVID at, at least, and I remember he was he would travel like three quarters of the year across the country yeah. to all the, you know, police, paramedic fire incidents that were happening where there were all kinds of really bad stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know that aside it, it it's uh it, you're right like when you find someone who is an expert in your particular thing with all the conditions that come or at least most of the conditions that come with it it's like a it's like a different story yeah, yeah. Um, he's almost like honestly he's almost like having a psychologist and a friend like together right yeah like he life coach almost yeah. too like i i don't know and we actually came across him and watched a video of him talking about ptsd to two officers and we watched the one video and we're like oh my god like yeah. that's we've never heard it really explained so perfectly and then i remember john saying like we didn't even know where he was and john sometimes is on the other side of oh we'll never get a hold of him I emailed him that night and I said, oh my God, he's in Newmarket. He's an hour away from us. He emailed me at like six in the morning the next day and we had an appointment booked. Like he's, yeah. he's um, just a remarkable person. I even feel better after we talked to him. Like he's, yeah. so there's your plug. There's your plug, Sorry. Bill. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I know, but we also don't want too many people to go to him because we still yeah. want appointments. I'm just yeah. joking. I'm just kidding. No, no. I, I can't imagine like he, how many people he's, he's helped. Like it's yeah. just. Yeah, yeah, so many. And he's he's one yeah. of those people who just, I, I mean, he'll help anyone who needs it, right? I mean, he might not be your long-term solution, but he'll find you someone who will be, right? Yeah. That's right. Um, or tell you where to go or be the guide. Yeah. I mean, he just knows, he knows all of it and he's so yeah. good. Um, and it's a privilege to be able to know someone like that, right? Yeah. Um, and we just, people, we laugh. people are oh, needed. Sorry. No, no, go for it. Yeah. You know, and we, well... Uh, we laugh because he doesn't watch the news, right? And I'm sure he's told you that before. So John forgets sometimes. Be like, oh, did you, you know, so-and-so? He's like, no. And I yeah. said, John, he doesn't watch the news. So he didn't know who George Floyd was. He right. didn't know who Kevin Frankish was. But sometimes John forgets. I'm like, he doesn't watch the news or listen to the radio. Remember? He keeps that. <laughs> yeah, he gets enough of the horror, yeah. like the tragedies in the world firsthand. Yeah. He doesn't need to hear about yeah. all the yeah. other ones. <laughs> and yeah. that's yeah, fine. Exactly. You know? yeah. I don't the, blame him for that. No, me neither. The the peer support thing is a, is a big thing too, right? Because I know mm -hmm. for for me, I feel like the the you know living with PTSD, the most help I have had is from 
people that have been through it, whether yeah. whether it's been Bill who listens to people or whether it's someone like me, another first responder that's been through it. That's where you get the most help from because mm-hmm. they understand. They've been yeah. through it or they've seen it and they get it. Where yeah. sometimes you can go into a doctor's office and they haven't been through it. They don't have any patients that, you know, they're treating for it. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes is where you're like feeling kind of lost, right? Yeah. No, and and humans have this amazing capacity to connect with people who have had shared experiences, right? Even mm-hmm. if nothing particularly said or whatever it is, you know, you just need to know and then there's this like established connection. Um, and it's not all the yeah. time with everyone, but certainly in these groups, it, it comes out a lot, right? Where that's yeah. the point of everyone being there. And, you know, as you say, like people who are suffering through traumas or through all kinds of like mental, emotional suffering, a lot tend to isolate themselves because they feel like they're bad or wrong or a problem or any kind of nonsense labels that we put on ourselves. I say nonsense not to dismiss the feeling, but just because it's not actually true. It's just how you're perceiving it at the time, right? And then you start to meet other people who have been through the same thing and they're like, oh, I feel that too. And all of a sudden, you're not alone in it, right? They might not be helping you directly at all, but just the fact that you know that there's others who are feeling the same, it normalizes what you're going through and what you're feeling. And maybe it's just enough to get you to feel okay that what what you're feeling is okay, right? And that applies to spouses as well or um, partners or friends or family or, or anyone who's like going through with someone who they love, right? And that's why a lot of like addiction support groups have family branches or spousal branches and so do the peer support for first responders it and it's also important right because you you can't leave anyone out of it right and everyone gets affected by it in, in different ways and mm-hmm. equally valid and important ways and you know you don't want to start hiding and pretending like those things aren't happening either because again it's going to come up and it's going to you know, poke a hole in your relationship along somewhere along the line and you want to be able to avoid that or at least repair it or anticipate it or just work with it so that you can, you know, do the most that you can with the best best amount of support, right? Um, just the, the other thing that I wanted to just touch on, which, I, which you brought up earlier, was that uh, you said that you consider PTSD to be an injury, right? And I yes. think that's a very profound thing to say because we don't often think about so-called mental or psychological conditions as injuries we tend to think of them more as illnesses Um, and some of the time I suppose that's true it's dependent but PTSD tends to be one that isn't that, that is quite obviously not an illness in the same kind of way that we have like the flu or something like that, right? Yeah, that's it's right. much more like an injury. It's a brain. I mean, it is a brain injury. It's not a like brain we're, injury, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're not we're not even speaking metaphorical. It's an actual brain injury. We're just mm-hmm. not used to thinking about things that way, right? That's right. And you know, the analogy that often comes up is like if you went to the doctor with all sorts of physical symptoms like headaches and anxiety and sweating and nightmares and all that kind of stuff, and it comes out in your history and you know, let's say you played 
sports, football or hockey or something, and you got like 10 concussions as a kid. And the doctor was like, well, you fucked up your brain a little bit. And this is what's happening to you. You wouldn't be like, oh, I'm bad for doing this. Right. You wouldn't have all these moral dilemmas about why you're in this situation. You would just be like, okay, well, I need to deal with this now. Um, It's not good. It might be really bad and might have all these unpleasant, terrible symptoms, but you're accepting of it. But I mean, and even more so when it's a so-called physical injury, like a broken bone or something like that, you're like, well, I can't use my arm. What do you want me to do? You know? Um, But when we get to the sort of like mental stuff, we tend to start judging ourselves and approaching it differently as if we can just control whatever's happening, right? Or that we can think our way out of it as if like you broke your arm and you could just be like, well, I'm just going to use it, but your nerves are damaged and you just can't, right? And I think so from that perspective, it's very appropriate to think of PTSD as a psychological injury, which it is because it's something that, you know, I mean, the injury itself is quite hard, I, I suppose, to describe in terms of the physical manifestation in your brain. But that aside, we can just say that it messed up something inside mm-hmm. and it's having all these disastrous symptoms for you, right? But you can treat it and there's things you can do to help and maybe it'll never go away and maybe you'll have to, you know, your left arm, like just like a broken bone, might leave you slightly weaker in one arm for the rest of your life, and you just have to deal with that. And so maybe PTSD might leave you vulnerable in certain areas for the rest of your life, and that's okay too. I mean, that's just how it is, right? Yeah. Um, but I think viewing it that way also brings into perspective the nature of it. And it's not that anyone is to blame or that you could have avoided it necessarily. I mean, you know, you can take precautions to not slip and break your arm, but if it happens, it happens, right? right? No one's going to yeah. be like, you shouldn't have broken your arm. It, it would be a nonsense thing to say, just like it's kind of nonsense to say to right. someone, you shouldn't have PTSD or, you know, pull your bootstraps up or any of these sort of old school ways of thinking about it. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because I think that that was a, a very important and, and profound point yeah. that you make. And I, I know you... Uh just what you said there about the broken arm like if someone breaks their arm they're in a cast right and other people can see that and they know that they have a broken arm with ptsd with it being a brain injury there's nothing like we don't wrap our heads up in band-aids or anything right like no one can can see that and that's kind of the it's that's kind of why people don't sometimes see it as an injury when they they look at somebody because they can't physically see the injury like you normally can but it, it is an injury, and it's just an injury that's in your brain that nobody can, can see. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could see it with brain scans, but you don't want to walk around yeah. with, like, your brain, yeah. brain scan yeah. shirt on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's all kinds of interesting injuries like that, right? Like, you can get moral injuries, which is one way of characterizing some of the PTSD stuff, um, when it, you know, heavily violates your moral code of something. Um uh, you know, there's like compassion fatigue, which is a different kind of injury, which is a lot more like on the nursing side of things. Um, and it, yeah, it's all things that you can't see, but are equally real and problematic and, and you know, hurt and are painful, let's say, is it, I think a better word to describe it is. Um, and they deserve to be treated like a broken arm, you know, with mm-hmm. compassion and, 
you know, understanding and care and, you yeah. know, from yourself and from other people. Since we started the, the Twisted Trauma Foundation um, and people that have reached out for peer support, there's so many people out there too. I never yeah. could have imagined the amount of people and it's not all just first responders. There's, there's other people too that have reached out and there's just so many people like it's a, it's something that I couldn't even believe how many people have it and are suffering with it. Suffering in silence. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's yeah. the thing when you come out in public and you start doing these kinds of interviews and, you know, creating podcasts and that, I mean, there'll be good backlash and bad backlash. I mean, you'll get yeah. some mm -hmm. people who will, you know, vilify you for it or call you this or that or think all these kinds of things and, you know, whatever, so be it. I mean, they're just projecting their own shit onto you. And But the more important part of it is that you start to see how other people are out there in silent and not doing anything and scared yeah. and alone. And then they hear something like what you guys do or they see it or however they come into contact with it and they realize that, oh, it's much bigger than just me, and that's a good thing. And, you know, and then that's how these groups start. I mean, you know, effectively, yeah. you could start your own, like, national or global, like, peer support group for people who listen to the Twisted Trauma podcast, and that's, yeah. and people there will bond with each other because of it. And um, that's amazing because it's helping so many people, right? Uh, if nothing yeah. other than just giving them a reason to understand what's happening right, right. and that's all that matters to, to us. yeah to us yeah. for sure is you know what if we can help one person that's yeah. that's we've done our job kind of thing like mm -hmm. um i wouldn't wish this upon anybody it's it's been it's been horrible it's the worst thing that has ever happened to me and my family and um yeah, yeah. just to be able to to help anybody is is awesome but so, so how are you both doing now in 2021? How are things going with everything? Since I've, since I started seeing Bill, which was what about February, February yeah. Um, I've kind of, I was stuck and then I started seeing Bill and I've kind of been able to start getting out. I work with an occupational therapist now. Um, we're going into grocery stores. Um, I still, have that anxiety and panic but i'm doing the work to try and get through that so i mean uh, if We've you come a long way yeah that's like for in, sure <laughs> in 2017 i would be downstairs by myself drinking alcohol and feeling sorry for myself and not wanting to be here and today i'm here and i've got joy in my life again and I'm just working through it day by day. And you got to take it day by day because you can't rush this, this injury. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And what about you, Jen? How are things going yeah. for you now? Feel Good. better about just, it? Absolutely. Yeah. Just, um, I do worry though. I work at the hospital. I'm a nurse manager. I'm actually now worried about the nurses coming through, um, for this COVID. So, and I, mm. um, I'm sure we're going to see some PTSD in, in nurses. So I'm kind of high on alert for that. Yeah. But at least, Hey, now you, you know, some of the symptoms to recognize and mm -hmm. you'll be able to be the good manager that can support their, 
you know, staff through it and not tell them to get over it or find another job or any crazy right. shit like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, if you, if you yeah. are, if you're, if you're listening to this and you are the spouse of a first responder or anybody that has a, a mental health injury or illness, um, reach out yourself too and try and find help for your spouse. Cause I think a lot of spouses don't really understand what's going on either. I was lucky because Jen was in the medical field and she knew a little bit about PTSD. Um, if she hadn't known anything about it, um, she probably wouldn't be here today, right? You probably would have been long gone. So if you, I had a spouse, reach out to me and I put them in the right direction which was to Bill and that I think has really helped her husband and their family um, so a lot of us first responders we we think we're big and strong and tough and we can't have any weaknesses so we won't we won't ask for help and if you're a spouse and you see these signs of PTSD or anything else, reach out to and, and try and get help for your husband or your wife. Absolutely. Um, and there's no shame in it, right? And it'll be better for everyone. No one, yeah. no one wants anyone to suffer like that, right? Yeah. Even, you know, it's like, it's a, it's the kind of thing where you're like, it's better for you if, I mean, it's better for everyone if you do better, right? Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. it's, in, and it doesn't matter who that you is. It's like the world wants you to be the best you. That's how you can be the best yeah. for the world. And I don't mean the best in some egotistical sense, but just in terms of being a happy and, and fulfilled and loving person, right? And yeah. sharing that with other people and being able to and, do that requires you to be vulnerable sometimes. Yeah, and, my, and like my, in my recovery, I needed Jen. I needed her to help guide me through this and push me through this because, um, like I said, I'm, I'm my job. I'm not supposed to show any kind of weakness. Right. And I kept it all in. And, and if I didn't have her, like she came with me to my first doctor's appointment. And if she hadn't of, I wouldn't have told him what was going on because I couldn't even, I couldn't even get a word out. I started just to cry hmm. and I couldn't speak. And so Jen was there and, and did the talking for me. Amazing. And yeah, yeah, don't be embarrassed to, you know, reach yeah. out and, and ask your wife or friend or whoever it is for help. Yeah. they yeah. want And, and they want to help you too, right? They might yeah. just not yeah. know how. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important as spouses too. It's hard sometimes, but they will downplay what their symptoms are at times. So sometimes I've had to be the one to say no to the doctor or to the psychologist or Bill and say, no, that's not really, it's a little worse than what you're saying. Cause I've well, found... and, it, and it can affect your memory as well. Too, yeah. right? Like I'll, I'll go through something. Um, I don't know. What's an example. Like the other day I was driving and I just had started having these thoughts of, of accidents in my head while I was driving. Yeah. And I, I, didn't tell my psychiatrist that at my next appointment mm. and Jen was working. So she wasn't there to tell him. And then she's like, did you tell him about this? And I'm like, no, I forgot. Yeah. So she, she actually, yeah, she speaks for me 
sometimes because I just can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I feel that too. I have that kind of memory. <laughs> but I mean, uh, yours is a little yeah. bit different. Yours is more of a protective mechanism, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. Together, you know, it, you're a much stronger team. Um, you support and love each other, and that's what you're there for. And you know, it, it's good. It helps everyone, even when it's hard, right? Yeah. But yeah, I guess the main message of today would just be like, to anyone listening who needs help or knows someone who needs help, reach out, find someone to do it. There's lots of options. If the first one doesn't work, try something else. It doesn't always hit first try, unfortunately. Um, And that there's other people out there who are going through what you're going through and it's okay. And there's hope on the other end of it. Right. And you guys are a testament to that. Yeah. I'm living proof that you can, you can come from, I mean, I sat in that darkness and and didn't want to be here anymore, and I've lived through that. Yeah. So since then, you know, I haven't uh, had a suicidal thought for a long time now. Um, so you can you can recover from this and you can get better. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm glad. Well, listen, thank you both very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us. Check out Twisted Trauma, the podcast, the foundation, show your support. Um, I'm sure you can find it everywhere online. I'll also put links into the description. Um, Is there anything else you want to plug? We have a a GoFundMe set up right now for, we've applied for charitable status. Um, Right now we have a GoFundMe set up that you can, uh, I have it on my uh, Facebook page and a link on the podcast, I believe you can, if you want to support us, you can click on that link to GoFundMe and, and donate whatever it is. And all the money and proceeds from that go towards supporting different mental health programs and initiatives. And we're going to try and expand and keep moving on to different communities as well. Amazing. Good stuff. Support the yeah. people that are supporting others. Um, yeah. Well, thank you again. Thanks, and we'll thank speak you. soon. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you.